right, good morning. Take out your Bibles and begin turning to Genesis chapter 8. We're going to try to again cover this chapter it's in entirety. We're trying to pick up the pace and do big chunks of Genesis or we'll be here for years, which wouldn't be a bad thing, but we don't want to take too long. When we last left our story, only Noah was left and the floodwaters were prevailing mightily over the earth. Last week was, was a rough week. The ruin of the rain. We saw that the wages of sin is death. And we saw that graphically last week. God had been warning mankind from the very beginning all the way from Genesis 2, verse 17. The day you eat of it, you shall surely die. You sin, you die. He was clear. Sin separates us from God. Sin separates us from goodness. Sin separates us from life. Because God is goodness and life itself. The wages of sin is death. You drink poison, you die. You drink spiritual poison, you die. God has been patient. God has warned about the coming judgment. God has now executed that judgment, and there's no denying that it's terrible. We saw the repetition in verses 17 through 24, all, all, everything, all mankind. The point is that God will deal with evil. He will not tolerate murder, rape, Abuse. Justice must be done. And it was. Comprehensively, only Noah was left. Well, what happened to Noah? That's chapter 8. We've just hit the climax of the story. How is it going to be resolved? What does God do next? Well, in keeping with our little mini-series alliteration, we've seen the reason for the flood, the rescue from the flood, the rain, or maybe we should have just said the ruin of the flood. Well, this morning we're looking at the recreation after the flood. I want you to consider that title for a second. I had to add a dash in there because I hadn't, if I hadn't added the dash, it would just look like recreation. Genesis 8 is not about recreation. Growing up, my father's church first met at the Hickory Rec Center, the Recreation Center. Right? So it was surrounded by soccer fields and basketball courts and playgrounds, because that's what the word means to us today. But the word is actually just recreation. So how did recreation become recreation? Well, the Latin word recreare literally just means to create again. But it kind of evolved and morphed to also then mean to refresh or to restore. So recreation, a break from work, is that which is supposed to refresh you or restore you physically or, or mentally. It's that which is supposed to bring you rest. So I want you to keep in mind the connection between recreation and rest. Keep in mind Lamech's prophecy about Noah all the way back in chapter 5, verse 29. He called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief. Or if you're looking in the footnote of the ESV, you'll see this one shall bring us rest. Noah's name sounds like rest. God will bring us rest from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. There has been ruin. How can we get back to rest? Because if you remember, that's what we were created for. All the way back in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, which should actually be the end of chapter 1, if you remember, the culmination of the creation week, it all ends in rest. Rest 
is the point. God rests on the seventh day. He blesses it. He makes it holy because on it God rests. And then there's the refrain. Where there's not the refrain. Remember, there's no. And there was evening and there was morning the seventh day. It's not there because rest is the point. The rest of the creation week is about rest, about entering into God's rest, about resting in relationship with him. That's what we were made for. We messed it up. After the ruin of sin, how can we get back? After the ruin of rain, how can there again be rest? What we're going to see is that it's only by recreation. Remember our second point last week in the ruin of the rain. Remember that chapter 7 is just filled with a great abundance of Genesis 1 language. The flood is a decreation of creation. It is God unmaking that which he has made. And we're going to see the same thing in this chapter. There's again going to be an abundance of Genesis 1 language. So Genesis 1, creation. Genesis 7, decreation. Genesis 8, re-creation. Rest requires recreation. Life requires recreation. But when we last left Noah, he's still out there. He's still floating in a box in the middle of the water. So before God recreates, God remembers The whole story of the flood revolves around chapter 8, verse 1. God remembered Noah. So we're going to see God remember, then we're going to see God recreate, and then we'll close by seeing how Noah responds and how we should respond, which is worship. Again, that's the gospel pattern. God remembers his people, God remakes his people, and then his people respond in worship. Genesis 8 is just Genesis 1 redux. Genesis 8 is re-creation. It is new life. So let's read it. It's a longer chapter, but I'm going to read the whole thing uh, for you. This is God's word. It is profitable, so we believe that, so we read it. Uh, You've got it there in front of you, I hope. It'll be helpful to you to have that opened up. I'm going to read the whole chapter, and then we'll begin to walk through it. So we're reading Genesis chapter 8. This is the word of God for the people of God. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. And the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark. For the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. 
In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Bow with me and let's go to the Lord in prayer as we begin. Father, we're thankful for your word. Father, I'm thankful for the privilege of preaching that word. Father, I know my weakness and I know your great ability. So we ask for your spirit to come and to, to illuminate this text, to give us understanding, Father, not just so that we would learn new things, Father, so that we would delight in you, so that we would see your goodness, so that we would be transformed um, into the image of Christ a little bit more as a result of what it is that we learn. Father, I can teach, but it is only you that can transform. So we ask for you to take these words and apply them to our hearts. Show us yourself in all your goodness and remembering your people and giving us new life. Father, lead us to respond as Noah does here in worship. Father, we are in desperate need, completely dependent upon you, apart from you, apart from Christ, we can do nothing. So we ask for you to work on our behalf. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we start with one of the best phrases in Scripture, but God. And consider those two words in light of everything that has come before, especially in light of 17 through 24 of the previous chapter. Total judgment, total destruction. Why? Again, we know why. I've overemphasized this, so we can't miss it. So we'll truly understand the flood. 7, 17 through 24 is because of 6, 5. The wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So when we start with man, when man is the subject, the actor, we get 6-5, great wickedness, evil continually. We get 6-11, corruption and violence. And then the judgment of 7, 17 through 24 is the natural consequence of that. I've stolen this from Spurgeon, it's stuck in my head. You drink poison, you die, right? That's just what happens. You sin, you get judgment. That's just what happens. So all that is man. Evil, wickedness, violence, judgment. But God. But is a conjunction. It's just a, a tiny little word. But sometimes it's the tiny little words that are the most important words. But is used to introduce to us contrast. And man, don't we desperately need some contrast 
in light of all that we've been seeing. When everything is darkness, when everything is evil, we desperately need contrast. But God, that's the contrast. You need the contrast. You need to see this contrast. That's why, though maybe three weeks on judgment in Genesis 6 and 7 might feel like a little much, if we can feel the weight of it, if we can see the darkness, well, now the lightness, the light, is going to look that much better. Bad, bad, bad. But God, that's the pivot. This is the shift. Things are about to change. Man, bad. God, good. And Scripture loves to use this little phrase to draw our attention to contrast and make us appreciate this term. It happened at the very end of this book. The story of Joseph. You know the story probably. Chapter 50, verse 20. Joseph has terrible brothers. He's been sold into slavery. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. We just read at the beginning of the service, Psalm 73, verse 26. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Acts 13, 30. You killed Jesus, but God raised him from the dead. Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And the ultimate example, of course, then is Ephesians 2, verse 4. You, dead in trespasses and sins, following Satan, a son of disobedience, a child of wrath, you are dead, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, has made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved, but God. And so things are finally looking up. I mean, just try and imagine things from Noah's perspective. He ends up on the ark for, for about a year, give or take. And maybe it's just not recorded for us, but we have God talking to Noah before the ark, telling him what he's going to do, telling him to enter the ark. Then we have him talking to him at the end, telling him to leave the ark. But we don't have any report of God talking to Noah while he was on the ark. So I've shared with you many times how crazy I can go sitting in one hour of rush hour traffic on on, on I-95 South trying to get to North Carolina. I've told you how much of a struggle 12 hours in the car with four kids can be for me. Well, here's Noah in a box, basically a floating coffin with a family surrounded by animals for about a year. This is maybe the one thing that the Noah movie maybe gets right. Because in it, Noah, Russell Crowe on the ark basically just goes crazy. And I can see that. That makes sense to me. This is a long time. Floating in the middle of the water, trapped in a box, maybe with no direction, no instruction. Has God forgotten me? I know you've been there. We've all been there. What's going on? Why are things so terrible? Why are things so dark? Has God forgotten me? Verse 1. But God remembered Noah. God didn't forget. And this, if you look at the structure of the Noah story, we don't have time to walk through it. This ends up being the very heart around which the whole thing is constructed. This is the center thematic um, pivot Point. We think the story is about judgment when it's actually primarily about God's grace to Noah. God 
remembers. Not remembers like we remember. I have a hard time keeping up with four kids. I remember once when I was a kid, my, my parents leaving me behind at church and being utterly bewildered that they could forget their precious son back at church. Well, now I have four kids and I get it. I understand. Just this week, I had a brief moment where I was like, wait, where's Tessa? And I was trying to find Tessa. And then I was suddenly reminded by the squirming in my arms, right? That Tessa was in my arms. I had her. I was holding her and I forgot Tessa. I'm to the point now where I have to write things down if I want to remember them. I'm pretty sure I've had a number of million dollar ideas that I've forgotten right, because I didn't write them down. I often forget, and sometimes I remember. That's not what it means for God to remember. God didn't forget Noah. We usually use the word remember as a mental thing. For God, the word remember is an action thing. Seventy times in the Old Testament, we have the word remember with God as the subject. And most often that God remembers is then followed by the preposition to God remembers to meaning that God's remembrance is more of an action directed towards someone than a mental recall of someone. When God remembers, God acts in Genesis 19, 29, God remembers Abraham and he rescues Lot as a result. In Genesis 30, verse 22, God remembers Rachel and he opens her womb, uh, delivering her from barrenness as a result. When God remembers, he rescues. And here's the good news. God doesn't forget. Which means, as we've been seeing, that for those who are his, for his people, he always remembers. And thus he always Rescues. This is illustrated for us well in Isaiah 49, 15. Isaiah is a wonderful book. You can, you can break it down according to much of what we've been talking about with the flood. The first part of the book is largely ruin. The second part of the book is largely rescue. Well, Isaiah 49 is in the rescue part. There has been judgment. Now there's going to be restoration. And so this section in chapter 40 starts off with this declaration of God to his people. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. Chapter 43, we know this one says, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. You are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. Chapter 44 says, I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a myth. I can just be going on and on and on through these opening chapters of the second part of Isaiah, but you get the idea that these wonderfully comforting verses, it's intimate language about God's great love for his people. And so then skipping to Isaiah 49, 15, God says this, can a woman forget her nursing child that, there, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget 
yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Mothers don't forget their children, right? Mothers love their children. They sacrifice everything for their children. They literally give them life, and then they feed them life for an entire year. A mother cannot forget a child. Ideally, because again, even the verse itself recognizes, well, even these may forget, the text says. Sometimes a mother does forget a child. Sometimes a mother does horrible things to a child. Listen, we, we will talk about what um, transpired in our state legislator last week. We will address the horrors of what the leaders of our state did and then celebrated and cheered. It's been hard not to address that yet. I'm saving it for next week. I'm saving it for 9 verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Blood is being shed. And then it's being celebrated. And so again, it almost feels like we've kind of passed the point of no return. Things are, things are pretty bad. But we're going to look at this in a little bit of detail next week when we get to that text. But so mothers obviously can forget. It happens. But God is the point. Even a mother, even the best at forgetting, I do not do this perfectly. But God will not forget you. God remembered Noah. And this language, this remembered language, this covenant language, it's going back to 618, where God makes a promise to Noah, I will establish my covenant with you. Again, we'll see that next week when God does that. Um, so no covenant yet, but God had made a promise. He'd made a commitment to Noah. And now here he is honoring that commitment. God is always true to his word. He remembers. So one verse, one simple point, but you will struggle to apply it for the rest of your life. Part of the fight of faith is fighting to believe this fact. Remember that God remembers. And remember that gospel order. God initiates, we respond. We are created in his image and likeness. We're created to do what he does. In this case, then, since God remembers, we are to remember. God's remembrance of us is the foundation. It is the motivation for us to remember him. And God reminds Israel of this many times. For example, the heading that the ESV gives to Deuteronomy 8 is remember the Lord your God. Verse 2 says, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years. 11, take care lest you forget the Lord your God. Verse 18, you shall remember the Lord your God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, remember. It's key and critical to our faith. Go read 2 Peter chapter 1. I love that chapter because Peter's talking about what, what God's grace does to us. It gives us faith, then virtue, then knowledge, then self-control and love, and so on. But, verse 9, Peter says, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Peter's saying, remember Christ. 
Remember the gospel. Remember that God has remembered you and he will not forget. You need that anchor. You need that foundation upon which to stand. God remembers Noah. There's one verse. What about the other 21 verses? God remembers and he acts. He rescues and he rescues by recreation. Point number two. Look at the second part of verse one. That wasn't even a whole verse. That was half a verse. Second part of verse one. God remembers and God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. I want you to see this. This is neat. We're back to Genesis 1 again. All of these connections are intentional. In 7, God has unmade that which he has made. Now he turns to remake that which he has unmade. We've moved from creation to decreation, now to recreation. And it's signaled for us right away. We have waters. We have a deep. That's Genesis 1 verse 2. There's darkness over the face of the deep. And then what does it say in 1, 2? And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Well, now, in chapter 8, verse 1, we have God making a wind blow over the face of the earth. It's the same word. Ruach. I can't do the cool guttural thing for the Hebrew. But wind and spirit are the same word in the Hebrew. Just like the spirit hovered over the chaos at creation, hovered over the deep, and then subdued the waters on the second day by dividing them into sea and sky, that the atmosphere. Well, then on the third day, he divides the sea to bring about land. Well, now in chapter 8, God is again rolling back the waters. Look at verse 2. Compare it to 7.11. God had opened the foundations of the great deep and the windows of heaven. Now he closes them and he restrains the rain, the rain of ruin. And then in verse 3, we see the waters receding continually. They are abating. Well, that was day 2 of creation. Well, then in verses 4 through 5, what do we have? We've got land. What's that? Well, that's day three again. The floating is finished. The ark is settled, right? The land is starting to reappear. Day three, God is doing something. And then in verses six through 12, we've got this sort of strange big chunk of the passage all devoted to these birds. Why? Well, in part because that's the fifth day. The birds are created on the fifth day. So in recreation, our attention is drawn again to the birds. We skipped the fourth day. But what about it? Well, the fourth day was the heavens, the stars, the sun, the moon. Those things are obviously unaffected by the decreation of this world. So they don't need to be recreated. So we go to day five and we've got the birds. It's evening and it's morning. It's the fifth day. What happens next? Verse 17, bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh that they may swarm on the earth. That's the sixth day. Obviously then culminating again with the creation of mankind back up in verse 15. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Recreation is complete. 
waters have been separated, land has been formed, birds and animals have again populated the world, and most importantly, here's mankind. Genesis 8 is Genesis 1 all over again. And that means, we'll look at this more next week, that means that Noah is Adam all over again. Noah is the new Adam, the next Adam. You got animals, you got a new beginning, he's the head of all people, he's given a charge and a commission, God makes a covenant with him, and then in two weeks, we'll also see him in a garden, sinning with the fruit of a tree. He's Adam. He fails. Next, we're going to need another Adam, and then we'll trace that through Abraham, another new people, another new beginning, another blessing, another new covenant. And then we'll trace that to Isaac. And then um, from Isaac to Jacob to Joseph, then we'll get to Moses in a couple years or something. Um, and then at some point you go to the new Israel. Israel is the new Adam. They're entering into a new land. God makes a covenant with them. God blesses them and gives them a charge. The promised land, Eden, right? They again fail. Next, so we need another new Adam. So we get to David. He's given a kingdom to exercise his dominion over. He's also blessed with a covenant. He's given a charge and he'll fail mightily. Next, right, all the way, right, we go through all the kings until we finally get to the new Adam, the, the true and better Adam, Jesus Christ. The only one who can do all of what the other Adams failed to do. You're supposed to read this and feel um, just, it's supposed to feel futile. It's supposed to feel hopeless. God keeps starting again and we keep failing. Oh, Christ, here we go. This is what we need. He too will be given a kingdom. He too will enact a new covenant. He too will find himself tested in a garden. He too will find himself faced with a tree. It's all part of the same story. It's the one big story. This is the story that you must know. You need to know how all the little stories of the Bible fit into this one big story. You need to know how all the little stories of history fit into this one big story. You need to know how the little story of your life fits into this one big story. It's a story of four movements. Right? You know the big ideas. Creation, we've seen it. Fall, we've seen it. Redemption, we've seen it promised and predicted. The last movement, re-creation. That's what we're looking at right now. Creation, fall, redemption, Recreation. That's the Bible. That's the story of what God is doing. And he's doing it here in Genesis 8. And he's doing it here in Genesis 8, ultimately, to get us to Christ. Or you could say to get us to rest. Or you could say to get us to peace. Look at the birds again. I think the birds, just, they're interesting. They're caught up on the birds. This is fairly common practice. Isn't that strange? Uh, for centuries, sailors took birds with them on ships. Right? If you don't have navigating equipment and you don't know where the land is, well, you release a bird. And if it doesn't come back, follow that bird, right? Because it's going to the land and it knows where the land is. If it comes back, you know that you are very far away from land. And that's not a good sign. I was reading one article this week that said that the Vikings thought that the ravens were particularly good at finding land. Ravens were strong, hardy birds. They could fly higher and farther. Well, here you've got the raven. 
No dice. Doesn't work. Well, then you've got the dove. A bit of a stranger choice. There's some things there. Raven and dove. People try to read all kinds of things into it. I'm not going to get into all that. It's not as strong or as long of a flyer. Either way, in verse 11, the second attempt, the dove returns. And what's it got? An olive leaf or an olive branch. This is where they're saying extend an olive branch comes from. You can pull a dollar out of your wallet right now and look on the back and you'll see the great seal of the United States. What is it? It's, It's an eagle. You know what he's holding? Left talon, full of arrows. Count them. There's 13 arrows, to be precise, representing power, representing the war that was necessary for the states to gain their freedom. But what's in its right talon? It's an olive branch, representing peace. The flag, you can see it across the water, that way, flying over the United Nations. It's just a blue flag with a globe, surrounded by two Olive branches. Peace. The olive branch is a sign of peace. It is a sign there's life again. That means the waters have been restrained. That means God's wrath has been restrained. He was at war with his creation. It was corrupt. He says, you corrupted it. I will corrupt you. Now, there's peace. There is rest. There is life. There is re-creation. God extends to Noah an olive branch. And we know know that Jesus is God's olive branch to us. The gospel is a declaration of peace. We looked at this in great detail last year in Colossians 1, verse 20. It's such an important verse and an important passage. It says that Jesus has made peace. Peace by the blood of his cross. Why did we need him to come make peace? Verse 21, you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And that's the man before the but God, alienated, hostile, and evil. And that's not what we're used to hearing. It's not the narrative that most of the world out there is giving us, that we're, that we're all God's children. No, according to this, We're all God's enemies. Romans 5, for example, verse 6, we're the ungodly. Verse 8, we're the sinners. Verse 10, we're his enemies. This is what the scripture says. That is the natural state of every one of us. That's the natural state of you sitting here in this room if you have not been born again by the grace of God. That was my natural state. But God. Back to Romans 5. Verse 6, Christ died. For the ungodly. Verse 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10, while we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Reconciliation. That's peace. That's the olive branch. That's Jesus. We were at every one of us, where every one of us were at war with God, and Genesis 7 shows us how that turns out. Noah's world was at war with God and the flood was the result. And that will be the result for every one of us apart from the grace of God in Christ Jesus who makes peace by the blood of his cross, by his death. We owe a death debt for our sin. Jesus comes to pay that death debt for us. And that sets us 
free. That redeems us. That buys us back. That reconciles us to God. That turns away his wrath and turns on his mercy. That makes us and takes us from sinner to saint, from enemy to friend, from lost to found, from death to life. God recreates. Listen, if the Bible is correct about the human condition, totally depraved, sinners by both nature and action, that means that only an act of God can save us. Spiritual rest the thing that we all most want and need, whether we know it or not, spiritual rest requires recreation. You must be born again. New life. You must be given new life. It's exactly what Jesus tells Nicodemus in John 3. If we're dead in our trespasses and sins, and that's just verbatim what the Bible says, well, then recreation is our only Hope. That's what brings us life and peace. And that's what everyone is looking for. I've been somewhat obsessed for the last couple of weeks uh, tracking and reading about the kum, the kum mela. I can't, I, excuse my pronunciation. Have, are you familiar with this? The kum, K-U-M-B-H, mela. It's, it's taking place right now in India, and it's the largest gathering of humans in history. They have about 120 million people will take part in this. Uh, it's a giant uh, Hindu pilgrimage uh, to one of the four rivers where they believe that the god Vishnu, in kind of battling with some of the demons, accidentally spilled some of the drops of, of immortality from his kum. Kum just means pot, uh, a little pot. Uh, so over 120 million people come bathe in these holy waters, over 30 million of them in one day. It's amazing. Go, go read about it. It's fascinating. Be careful. There's a number of naked older men in a lot of these things. Um, so be careful about what you read. Um, but, but a dip in the waters is supposed to be restorative. It's supposed to wash away all your sins. It is supposed to give you new life, to recreate you. So I was reading about it last week, and they were interviewing some of the people as they came up out of the water after bathing um, in these waters. And one of the pilgrims said, you step inside the holy water, and you feel inside that you have cleansed yourself. Another one came out. Apparently it's cold. He said, I was shivering and trembling, but the moment I stepped into the water, I was just good. Now I'm going back to my home as a new person. That's re-creation. You see what's going on here, right? We all know that we're not right. We all know that we're not good. You can't avoid it. We all have this lingering sense of what we were created for, created in the image of God, created to be in perfect relationship with him, and we're all somewhat aware that we've lost that, and so we all have this lingering longing to get back what has been lost. And so you get... Ritual cleansings where over 120 million people travel from all over to wash in some dirty water. How can we get clean? That's what everyone's asking. How can we be recreated? And the point of the scriptures and the point of what's going on here in Genesis 8 is that it is not by anything that we do. God recreates. That's what he's doing in Genesis 
Hey, no, it's just floating around in a box. God is working. God is doing something. God is bringing new life. And that's a picture of what every single one of us needs. God recreates. Final point. God remembers. God recreates. Noah responds. I should have just put Noah worships, but I couldn't get away from the R's. Plus, that's what worship is. Worship is a misunderstood Word, we think it's just a religious word. It's even misunderstood in the church. We think it's just, it's the music. Worship equals music. I try really hard to talk about Andy as our music leader, right? not as our worship leader, because that's, that's confusing, right? This whole thing that we're doing here in this service is worship. So in a very real sense, also, Romans 12, we know that all of life is supposed to be worship. You know, worship, at its most basic, is simply our right response to God. Right? The word used to be worth-ship. So it's, it's ascribing worth. We all worship something. Whatever is worth the most to us, we worship it. Whatever we love and value the most, that's the thing that we worship. So what do you worship? And honestly, you need to constantly be asking yourself that question. What do you live for? What gets you out of bed in the morning? What brings you the most Joy, what do you give the most value to in how you use your time and your thoughts and your treasure? Genesis 1 shows us that we were created for worship. So the question is not, do we worship? The question is, what do we worship? And so worship simply defined is just, it's, it's our response to the person and work of God. It's supposed to be seeing his worth and then responding accordingly. Delighting in that worth, displaying that worth. Worship is ascribing and assigning to God his true value. It is valuing and treasuring God above all other things. And that's exactly what Noah does. Verse 18, they've gone out from the ark. The ordeal is over. The flood is finished. God has remembered Noah. He has been true and faithful to his word. He's preserved and he has protected him. He has given him new life. So what? Verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Noah worships God. That's simple. God initiates. Noah here responds. God has shown Noah grace. Noah here shows God gratitude. You know, that's always the order. That's why the gospel is so important. That's why you must understand grace and not just understand the, the kind of the mental concept of grace, but delight in grace. Right? See how good God has been to you in Christ and the worship will follow. My wife's not here, so I can talk about her uh, today. I'll talk about her more when she's gone, so I can't get in trouble. So don't go tell her. Uh, my wife is really, really good to me. Again, the more I pastor, we've been working with a friend from North Carolina the last couple weeks. Marriage is falling apart. And so the more I pastor and the more I deal with relationships and marriages, the more I'm thankful for, for my wife. So when I'm not being an oblivious, selfish jerk, and I'm aware and attentive to how good she is to me, and even in spite of my sin, I'm not an easy person uh, to live with. So when I realize my grumpiness, and then I realize her graciousness, that's what grabs me. 
That, that's what changes me. That's what makes me very thankful for her. That's what makes me want to respond in kind and thank her and serve her and love her and praise her. That's how worship works. See God's goodness, respond in gratitude. Worship. Again, Noah's not the first to do this. Abel has worshipped. We saw the line of Seth calling on the name of the Lord, worshipping. But we have another Bible first here in these verses. This is the first mention of an altar. First time the word is used. This place that is set aside and designed specifically for sacrifice, which is an expression of worship. We talked about this a little bit last week, but it's not as strange as it sounds. We do the same thing. And back, back to Melissa. Sometimes when I'm overwhelmed by her goodness, I just, I just want to do something for her. I want to express my love for her. And to do that, I sacrifice something. And I sacrifice money. But we don't do presents or we don't, we don't do Christmas or birthday. It's, it's contractual giving. It's not a bad idea. It's not bad. You can do it. But we don't do it. Because it's like, you have to give me a present, and if you don't, I'm mad at you. Yeah, okay. So we don't really do that. Um, but so sometimes, right, I, I want to buy her some flowers or a really good meal because that's her love language. And since we don't do presents for, for holidays, a couple of weeks ago, it's been a long stretch, and you know, a lot of that falls on her, and I was just very thankful. I wanted to do something big for her. So I bought her a vacuum. It sounds lame, but that's what she wanted, right? That was her, that was the desire of her heart, this really fancy uh, vacuum. She wanted it, and she was delighted in it, right? So again, I want to honor her, and so I sacrifice money to serve her because I'm delighted in her. Sometimes I sacrifice time. I want her to get a night out, so I'll take on the impossible challenge of doing all four kids by myself so she can get out and get a break, right? I love her, and so to express that, sometimes I sacrifice to her. And that's what sacrifice is in the Bible. It's not entirely about the animals. We'll talk about the blood a lot sometimes. That's an important part, but that's not the heart of it, because the heart of it is that the sacrifice is an expression of the heart. Noah is thankful, so he gives things of value. He makes sacrifices to God, and he offers up burnt offerings to God. Now, the crime against humanity perpetuated by Nazi Germany against the Jewish people 70 years ago, right? You know what it's called, right? The, the Holocaust. You know why it's called that? It's because of this. It's this word. Burnt offerings when the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek over 2,000 years ago, called the Septuagint, they translated this word Hebrew, this Hebrew word burnt offerings, halakostos. Halas means whole. Kostos means burnt or, or burning. So the genocide was so horrible and it was so total that they took this word for a whole burnt offering, total burning, and they appropriately applied it to the tragedy um, that happened uh, to so many people uh, back then. It's a powerful, all-encompassing word. Noah offers a whole burnt offering, which means it's supposed to represent his total surrender and his total dedication to God. You have given me everything that I have, therefore everything that I have is yours. You have saved my entire life, therefore my entire life is yours. Yours. 
That's worship. That's the right response to the God who is everything and gives us everything. We give him ourselves. Not because we have to, but because we want to. Because we see his goodness. We see his radical generosity toward us. We see the grace and we can't but help to give back the gratitude. No worships. And look quickly at verse 21. We can't do whole chapters. This is too hard. There's too much here. 21. 21 is a strange verse. God is pleased with the offering. Here's the good news. We talked about this last week, so I'll get in detail. The good news is the main idea, no more floods. I will never again curse the ground because of man. Great. But wait. Second half of the verse. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Nothing's changed. The rain has not changed human nature. You see, the problem of sin is not external. It's internal. The problem is the heart. The problem is not that you do some bad things. The problem is that you are bad. A little bit of water or a lot of bit of water cannot do anything about your heart. Yeah, so God sends the flood not to transform hearts, but to punish sin. Why then does he not send more floods to punish more sinful, untransformed hearts? And if you go read the commentaries, this verse just drives some people crazy. God says he will never again curse the ground for the intention of man's heart is evil. What? Okay, what about 613? I have determined to make an end to all flesh for the earth is filled with violence. Or 6-7, I will blot out man whom I have created. Why? For, verse 5, man's wickedness was great and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Nothing's changed. Evil heart before the flood. Evil heart after the flood. So why the different response? Why judgment then and patience and mercy now? It tells us. It's there in the text, context. Use it, follow the progression. The previous verse explains the current verse. It's sacrifice. It's propitiatory sacrifice. That has to be what verse 21 is saying. God smells the pleasing aroma. Again, this this is is imagery. This is a metaphor. He's not hungry. He's not smelling meat. There's been sacrifice. God is pleased with the sacrifice. He is appeased by the sacrifice. And then he says, never again. Remember what we talked about last week, why verse 2 of chapter 7 was so important. God provides a sacrifice. God had prepared for this. God had commanded Noah to bring the seven pairs of clean animals so that they could be offered up to God at this very moment, so that they could please God, so that he could then offer mercy. The sacrifice propitiates the wrath of God. Noah is mediating for the rest of humanity. Noah represents the rest of humanity. Noah offers up sacrifices for us in our place and the wrath of God is turned away. No more floods. It just has to point forward to Christ. Noah makes peace by the blood of these animals. Jesus makes peace by the blood of the cross. The animals die. No more wrath. No more flood. Jesus dies. No more wrath. No more death. Noah's sacrifice propitiates. It 
covers, it turns away wrath so that God can be merciful. Nothing's changed, but God is merciful to us because of what the mediator has done on our behalf in our place. That's the gospel. And that's what Christ comes to do for us. That's how the rest comes. And it only comes through Christ. God remembers us in Christ. He rescues us in Christ. He recreates us in Christ. And that's then what leads us to respond to him in worship. God recreates. God saves. We respond. He's good. We're thankful. Let's let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Father, it's so so rich and it's so deep and there's so much wisdom contained in it. Father, we've barely begun to scratch the surface of this chapter. And so we ask and recognize that we are dependent upon you to do for us what I cannot do for us, to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Father, speak to us, uh, teach us. Um, We pray that your spirit would work um, by your word on our hearts and and on our minds, Lord. I pray that we would see the great goodness that you have demonstrated to us here in Genesis chapter 8 and remembering your people and recreating your people. Father, make us a people of worship and of praise. Father, we are often so entitled, so apathetic. We grumble and we complain, Father, because we don't understand what we deserve or we don't understand what you have given us in Christ. Father, help us by your spirit to understand. Father, help us to believe. Father, help us to hope and delight in Jesus Christ and the great grace and mercy that you have shown us uh, to him. Father, we ask for you to do this work now on our behalf, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.